Hey there, it's Laura Flynn from Making Contact. Did you know our listeners are the ones responsible for making this show happen every week? We provide the show for free to radio stations because we think it's important to creating dialogue and impacting public discussions and policies. Right now, more than 100 stations in the U.S. carry us. If you like what you hear, go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a tax-deductible donation to support our work. That's radioproject.org. Now for this week's show. Making, making contact. Making, making, making contact. You're listening to Making Contact. I'm Jasmine Lopez, and I'm standing on Prospect Avenue in Norco, Louisiana. Norco is a town of about 3,500 people and home to the major Shell oil refinery that you hear now. It looks like your typical oil refinery with spherical storage tanks, tall flare stacks, and plumes of steam. It has a foul smell and sits in close proximity to a low-income community. This refinery has released over 3 million pounds of pollution since 2005. From Norco, Louisiana, to Flint, Michigan, to Los Angeles, California, environmental racism is real. On this edition of Making Contact, we meet three people directly impacted by polluting industries and that are working to create change. We talk to journalist Aura Bogado and supervisor Hilda Solis. But first, we hear from Making Contact storytelling fellow Ivan Rodriguez about his experience with institutional racism and the hidden effects it has on his community. Sit back because Ivan's about to take us for a ride. Cycling has been like a small getaway for me. It feels like you can get a moment of silence. You can be alone with your thoughts and reflect. Around my home, that best happens at night when you can get the whole street to yourself. Wide, smooth, there's no traffic. That's a dream. I've been riding my bike since I was 10 years old. I remember I learned in my backyard and my parents were always hovering over me because they didn't want me to get hurt. And so when they did let me out into the street, I would always go further than I should have. And it was around that time that I started realizing that the area around me was gray and dull and really just not friendly. The entire area is like this. All of Southeast LA, which includes Vernon, especially Vernon, being that their motto is exclusively industrial. So right now we're standing on Slauson and Alameda. Um, this is the border between Huntington Park and the city of Vernon. So when you stand at the corner, you see um, city of Vernon. And what's interesting about this is that they have their own logo which is kind of like a cog and you know it says city of vernon california founded 1905 exclusively industrial it's funny because it's not with what looks you know a lot of industry in the background with a lot of smoke a lot of pollution coming off of the uh off of the factories in the background i had never really thought about the health impacts of living here i think like everyone else we believe that it's well contained and it's not affecting me but my mom got really sick at this one point and I didn't know where to point my frustrations at. This is difficult for me then it has to be really difficult for you. Around this time my sister Erica really gave me another perspective on how to look at the situation how to approach this um, just what was happening you know. LA is 
one of the dirtiest cities in the entire nation. It's it's every it's all of us. It's this entire area. The only places where I think the air gets a little a little better is you know, out where the upper middle class uh white people live. Before I understood environmental racism, it was already having an effect on me. It really did change my perspective. A lot of people, when they get into hard times, they get into drink or drugs, you know, what have you. Luckily for me, when I found myself in that situation, I found Jesus. Um, you're gonna have to move up, so let me show you how this, let me show you how this thing works, so. So Jesus is one of my oldest friends. I've known him for about 10 years now. We bonded for the first time over bicycles. I inspired you. I inspired you. Okay, well, good. Now you found... I'm your Yoda for bikes. So, truth be said, Jesus was not my Yoda of bicycles, but we did learn everything together. So, at this time, I I would ride my bicycle just to be alone, to get, you know, time to just reflect, and music seemed to be an escape. And I attached a speaker to my bicycle, so I used to always play music whenever I would ride. <laughs> Machines was one of my favorite bands and I would play No Shelter. The song inspired me to take action and made me want to do something. It brought it brought an urgency to my mental door. that it inspired me to take was to spread the truth about the pollution in Los Angeles and the conditions of the environment and the quality of the air in this area. After realizing that, you know, all this was happening to me, um, the way that I was able to overcome it was by getting others to join, to join and know about that struggle. The way that I did that was by creating a bicycle club and taking kids my age who had never been outside of their city into all kinds of cities in Los Angeles. So. so the bike club started with just an idea and I felt as though it was going to be hard to take off if I didn't have a, a reliable support group. So luckily I had Jesus and I had other friends who were supportive of the idea. And it took about a year, so I was kind of iffy about whether or not it was going to happen at all. When it came time to the for the first ride, and we had been advertising for this first ride for about two weeks, we weren't sure if anyone was going to show up. We were kind of scared that no one was going to show up. Yeah. So right now where we are, we are in front of my old high school. This is Huntington Park High School. Uh, so in all of our time as a club, uh, we only met in two different places. One being this high school, uh, right on the steps, we would meet up and leave for our rides, and in and out which is on Pacific, um, two streets that way. And it turned out that 25 people showed up for this first ride. So, uh, this is um, this is Miles, actually. 
uh, crossing over Slauson um, going east becomes Soto. Soto is known for crossing into Vernon and over up to East LA. Less than two miles away from the high school, we pulled into this McDonald's parking lot because someone had a bloody nose, someone else's throat was burning. Uh, this is where Bandini Boulevard and 37th Street kind of cross. Um, so 37th Street turns into Bandini. Across the street from the Farmer John's, which has the worst stench uh, in the world. This is the factory. You know, this is where they. It's, a, it's basically a slaughterhouse. Um, so the funny thing like is that they have these murals painted outside there, of uh, what is a family-friendly farm, right? There's all these pigs running around, kids, farmers, his wife, a barn, and you know, ironically, it's in the middle of all this industry. The smell that you, that the smell that comes to you is. Um, there's bacon in the air, there's smog, oil, um, and all of this, it just it gets down in your throat, up in your nose. You know, if we were, this isn't just a, a cyclist problem. If we were standing outside my house for maybe 30 minutes uh, or even an hour, you'd get the same effect. Um, so it's just, it's just that we're on a bike that we, it's more obvious, but this is happening to everyone who's just outside in this area. Once you've been biking for a while, what you want to do is you want to drink water, uh, wash out your mouth, um, and then and then drink water. So you want to spit out everything that, that you've been breathing in so far. Because you're you're more in touch with your with your surroundings as a cyclist, you're riding your bicycle through the roads, and you're aware of the quality of the air you're aware of how much traffic there is and you're just more in touch with your surroundings as a cyclist but i think everyone in this area has a different opinion on how the environment affects their lives for me environmental racism is waking up around 1 a.m in the morning and listening to the train crossing by Huntington park filled with uh, chemicals. Environmental racism is living next to all of these industries and never even noticing them. Environmental racism is our pediatrician saying our daughter will most likely have asthma because of where we live. Environmental racism is explaining to my younger siblings why it smelled bad outside. Uh, environmental racism is when uh, the 5.7 million children who go to school in the blast radius of an oil train are primarily uh, children of color and poor children. For Making Contact, I'm Ivan Maceda Rodriguez in South Los Angeles. Ivan was Making Contact's Community Storytelling Fellow. This segment was produced using Hindenburg editing software. Hindenburg's mission is to tear down the technical divide between storytellers and their audience. For more information, go to Hindenburg.com. After the break, we hear from journalist Aura Bogado. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to download shows or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Welcome back to Making Contact. I'm Jasmine Lopez. Aura Bogado is a staff writer at Grist and covers environmental justice. I interviewed Aura by phone, and she says she writes about the way that social inequities map themselves onto communities of color. 
particularly through the environment. Aura shares more about what she's found through her reporting in Los Angeles. Right. So my focus is, you know, as you mentioned, these communities in L.A. that are communities of color. They're largely black and brown communities. Uh, I think pretty much so far, most of the commu- maybe all of the stories that I've done uh, tend to focus on these communities. That's not difficult to do because L.A. is one of those cities uh, and has been for a while in which people of color are the majority. However, the stories of these communities don't usually get told when we think about L.A. I mean, it, it depends. Um, I think that there's a lot of tropes about certain neighborhoods and there's a lot of uh, concentration, you know, at least in, in popular media and even with a lot of news stories um, where, you, you know, might be dominated by Hollywood and or the west side of L.A. Um, the west side of L.A. isn't even all white anyway. Uh, but a lot of times we'll sort of see, you know, stories about white people sort of centered. Um, and I'm trying to sort of recenter it onto communities of color. I can say, you know, without surprise, um, as is probably true in most, if not all, cities in the U.S., that communities of color by and large, tend to have the biggest concentration of threats to um, the quality of air, the quality of water, the quality of life overall, um, and also the quality of death, to be honest. I think that a lot of times the issues that some of these communities have to contend with do result in very serious uh, very serious problems. It could be every, everything from you know, occasional nosebleed and, and migraines to very serious asthma and other respiratory issues and even cancer and death. Um, and so that's, it's, it's very true here in L.A. Um, when we talk about South L.A., when we talk about Long Beach, Compton, Commerce, again, these black and brown communities, um, we see that time and time again, uh, these sort of diesel heavy-duty polluting industries are housed in these neighborhoods. Um, and, and that's, it's, it's what I've found. It, any, any new neighborhood uh, that I may be covering, it's sort of the same story over and over again. And it, like I said, it just maps itself onto these communities. And I find that communities are, by and large, really organized around a lot of this stuff. You know, um, in a place like Commerce, for example, I think that's a largely untold story. Um, there's one person in particular named Angelo Logan, but there's many other people uh, from Commerce who have sort of dedicated their whole lives to kind of exposing what's happening in Commerce. Commerce is the terminal for a lot of the um, big, heavy freight trucks that come in from the big, the two big ports in LA and in Long Beach. And it's just a, it's, it's a diesel city. I mean, there's just diesel everywhere. I, I don't live too far from it. So I was on the freeway today on the 710 and, you know, it never gets old. It's every time that I pass by commerce, it's like, you know, you see these heavy, heavy, heavy polluting industries and, you know, dotted by houses. And I'm on the freeway driving with just freight trucks all around. You're just completely surrounded by freight trucks, right? Um, and 
I think that for a lot of people who have to, to live with it, they organize. They know that it's happening. Um, and some people can, you know, get more attention than others. Some people can make it their lives work. Some people can't. But I think that people know that it's happening. I don't know if they always have the resources to know how to object to it. But I think that it, increasingly that's, that's something that's happening as well. that if you take a state like California, which is known as, it's sort of this conundrum in which so many of us drive cars, carbon emitting vehicles, right? But at the same time, California sort of is seen as this green friendly state in that we have cap and trade. And cap and trade is touted both in California and increasingly not just around the US, but around the world as this great program that's going to reduce carbon emissions. When you actually take a look at what's happening, it's a scheme, it's a, it's a market, right, in which maybe some emissions are being reduced, but in certain neighborhoods, corporations just pay for carbon offsets, and so they keep doing the same emissions polluting that they've been doing. So you don't see a drop in emissions in, in places like, like commerce, for example, right? L.A., for example, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the, the port of Long Beach and the port of Los Angeles are they're the number one and two ports in, in the country. And most of the stuff that we're wearing, that we're using, that we're demanding as consumers, it all comes through those two ports if it's coming from Asia, right? Los Angeles just celebrated a gigantic, gigantic new freight that came in. It's a French-owned company, and they were bringing stuff in from Asia. And, you know, these are really, really gigantic uh, containers that are shipping containers or freight containers, so they can be dropped right onto a truck. And then, like I said, they get right onto that 710 freeway, right? And that's celebrated by the same politicians that will also tell you that they want to see a green Los Angeles, right? Our mayor, Mayor Garcetti, you know, on the surface, I think that there's a lot of talk about wanting to be a green city. But when you're celebrating, you know, these gigantic diesel vehicles, but not calling them such, you're saying that it's good in the name of trade. You sort of see, again, th this conundrum that I'm talking about. It's sort of like industry versus uh, our environment and ultimately people's health and lives, right? So, I mean, it depends who you talk to. I think that um, in terms of people who are focused on environmental justice in particular, they want to be able to create and think about, reimagine systems and programs that provide co-benefits that everybody can, can truly take advantage of. Because like, as I said, that we see with cap and trade, it looks good on the surface, you know, overall you might get a reduction in emissions, but if the same communities are still being polluted, it's not good for those communities, right? If there's a great benefit overall, but the benefits aren't equal for everybody. I think that the environmental movement as a whole has yet to take people of color seriously enough to have them in positions of power and to use the knowledge that they already possess as the people who are most affected by both local emissions and the greater ravages of climate change 
that it's not always about uh, a white academic coming in from the outside and observing this and that therefore legitimizing what people already know. It's about taking what people already know and sort of working with that. I think that, that that's something that uh, is sort of missing in, in the greater environmental movement. I think that's changing, but it's slowly changing. Aura Bogado is a writer who covers environmental justice in Los Angeles. Up next, Making Contact producer Monica Lopez talks to supervisor Hilda Solis about how Excite Technologies' arsenic emissions endangered the health of over 100,000 people. Hello, I'm Monica Lopez, and I'm on the phone with Hilda Solis, a politician and a member of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors for District 1, representing sections of Northeast and Northwest Los Angeles. Welcome to Making Contact, Supervisor Solis. Thank you very much, Monica, for having me. Supervisor, throughout your career, you've done a lot of work around labor and environmental issues. Uh, most recently, you've been involved in issues related to the lead contamination by Exide Technologies battery recycling plant in Vernon. Can you share some background on the matter? Yes. Uh, this uh, particular corporation uh, was operating with a permit that was supposed to be temporary, and it went on for about 33 years. They were cited by um, state viol- uh, regulators that were uh, overseeing the plant for many numerous uh, violations in terms of environmental uh, contaminants. And finally, about a year ago, they, they shut the place down, but unfortunately, they didn't come up with any remedies to help the impacted communities that live in the surrounding area. So there's been a big fight going back and forth in terms of why it took so long to get uh, focus attention from Sacramento, the Department of Toxics and Substance Control, to focus on this issue and come up with some remedies. Finally, after the community, I think, really began to organize closely and, and I had just come into office, we, we started to get the county involved, even though the county doesn't have any regulatory authority oversighting the, the plant, um, I thought it was important enough for us to help lift up the voices, the voices of our community. And as a result, we took a group of 50 community uh, residents from the area, from East L.A., Boyle Heights, some of the surrounding cities that were impacted up to Sacramento, and, and people testified before the Assembly Toxic Subcommittee that oversees DTSC, as well as meeting with different legislators, assembly people, uh, senators, to talk about the need to put money in for mitigation and cleanup, because so far... Uh, we know that Exide was um, in a, how could I say, under a consent decree with uh, DOJ and the, the state to clean up and, and provide remediation for the plant, but not really for the community. So this is this was very, very important. And as a result, the governor, um, as of late, has now suggested uh, that he would be able to put forward at least $176 million for the cleanup. And that would at least uh, satisfy, I would think, maybe the cleanup of about 3,000 properties' homes, Uh, when in effect, though, the actual uh, radius is about 10,000, and that comes out of the state Department of Toxics and Substance Control. So um, we're we're in the phase right now where the county is being aggressive. We've set aside $2 million to start the planning and cleanup, and just the other day I was out there in Commerce, City of Commerce, and actually viewing what our public health department and some of the contractors that we have on board – to go and begin to talk to the residents about cleanup and giving them uh, feedback about what the levels of toxins or lead 
uh, are in their soil. And for me, it was very gratifying that that was the first, you know, one one major accomplishment that's happened. And we can and we want to continue to work on this because so many of the families that I have come to know now over the last year working on this issue is that we see a lot of developmental disabilities. We see a lot of people whose lives have been shortened or been taken from them because of exposures, because of the radius and the impact uh, of where they live nearby Exide. And uh, I saw it in in uh, youngsters, in a uh, young child. In fact, when we went to one of the homes the other day to visit with the family that ha- that agreed to have their home cleaned up, it was a, it was grandparents there, and there was a little boy uh, that came out. And um, I asked the grandmother, I "Go, oh, how, how's this? How's your grandchild?" And the the child um, had uh, had brain surgery actually had his skull, uh, you know, opened up, and you could see the scar tissue. You could tell that he had some developmental disabilities. And the child is only two years old, and I asked the grandparents, I said, where does, where does your grandchild live? Was he raised here? And she said, well, no, he lives, he lives over in Commerce, which was like the next adjoining community, which, again, is in the same radius of where Exide, um, the the, the uh, contaminants were, were released. And so, you know, those kinds of things I think are very heartening and discouraging, I think, for our community. And obviously they need help. They need to be told how and why it's important to get uh, blood levels tested, to have their homes cleaned, uh, not just on the outside but also on the inside, and to be then uh, given the opportunity to seek any kind of uh, medical help or assistance they might need for further examinations. So we're just starting this process, but it's it's uh, a tale of two Americas. There's one here in uh, the Boyle Heights, uh, southeast cities, and Vernon and Commerce where Exide uh, is, is placed, uh, and that of, say, Porter Ranch, which is another case in in California, uh, where uh, higher income uh, individuals uh, were able to get uh, the state involved, the governor and everyone else to come down and and immediately uh, provide assistance and relocation for people there because of their exposure to uh, methane gas and gases. Um, Here in East LA, I I still have yet to hear if anyone's been offered vouchers or anything to uh, be able to leave their home as their homes are being cleaned. Uh, and it's a tale of two different cities, and and it's very uh, discouraging that that's what happens, but we are hopeful that this won't happen again and that the governor and, and the legislature will take swift action to correct this so it never happens again, and there's never a 33-temporary-year permit given to uh, a corporation like Exide that uh, really took advantage of our communities. And I'm hearing over and over again that wherever there are plants that they have operated, they have left the same damage in those communities in the country. And that's very stark. That is a very stark uh, piece of information. Mm -hmm. Supervisor Solis, you you were raised in in La Puente by immigrant parents. In fact, the story is that your parents met in a citizenship class. How does your personal background in... Well, it's even more important. This story hits home because... My father worked for about 20-some years, 25 years, in a battery recycling plant, uh, which was adjacent to where we lived in the city of industry, and that was Quimetco. And they are the competitors for Exide. They are, the, I think, one of the last remaining 
battery recycling facilities in the state. And um, so I know what this means. I know what my father had to go through. I saw what happened to his uh, colleagues, to employees that worked there that died of cancer. My father had uh, uh, lead blood levels that were very high and dangerous. In fact, he had several strokes after he you know, finally left the plant, but we didn't know that it was all, you know, as a result of where he worked. We knew that it was a dangerous job. I knew that. My father was a, a shop steward there for the Teamsters and helped to organize immigrant workers who didn't speak English to help them get safety protection gear that they needed so they wouldn't be exposed to these contaminants. But that was some 20, 25 years ago. And we know that we still have to do more and that we have to have state regulation and laws in place to treat people equally. So to me, this is, as we know, probably one of the biggest environmental justice uh, footnotes in our history that, um, that can't happen again. L.A. County Supervisor Hilda Solis was the first Latina to serve as the U.S. Secretary of Labor and in the California State Senate. As a state senator, she sought to pass environmental justice legislation and was the first female recipient of the John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award in 2000. For Making Contact, I'm Monica Lopez. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. If you have a story to share about environmental racism in your community, tell us about it on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. To find out more about issues of environmental racism, visit our website at radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcast, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. I'm Jasmine Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.